Are you a political hobbyist? Do you read the Hill Times or iPolitics just for fun? How about tuning into the Sunday morning talk shows? Chatting about politics with friends or family, just like if you were talking about your favorite sports team? Well, if you are, you might be hurting democracy. Welcome back to In Focus with David Coletto. I'm David Coletto. On this episode of In Focus, I'm joined by Eitan Hirsch, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Tufts University. His research focuses on civic participation, voting rights, and the relationship between election rules, strategies, and the behavior of voters. In 2020, he published his second book, Politics is for Power, a groundbreaking analysis of political hobbyism, treating politics like a spectator sport, and an urgent and timely call to arms for the many well-meaning, well-informed citizens who follow political news, but do not take political action. In this interview, we discussed his research and the findings of his book and what they mean for American and Canadian politics and the future of our democracies. I hope you find my interview with Dr. Hirsch useful and informative. Well, uh, Dr. Hirsch, thank you so much for for joining the podcast and um, taking some time to to talk about your research in your book. I just finished it for the second time in preparing for for our conversation and thought it it challenged my thinking. It introduced new ideas that are so obvious, I think, at first, but then I don't think have been articulated in the way that you had. Um, And so thanks for being here. Good to see you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the at the base, I guess, and that is uh, you introduce a concept in your book, um, which I had not heard framed this way, but makes complete sense now that you've described it. Uh, political hobbyists, what are they, um, and why write a book that that really targets them and, and, and focuses on them? So I'll answer the second part of your question first. Um, when I was starting to write this book, I did so in part because I saw a huge disconnect between the politics of the people I knew around me, friends, family, neighbors, versus the politics that I teach. I'm a political scientist, so I teach about um, how things get done in government. Who has power? What do they do with it? And when I looked all around me at a fairly like intense moment of uh, politics in the United States, I think, I saw people spending an hour or two a day thinking about politics, but without any strategy. There was no goal. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, it was more like just a consumption activity. You follow a team, you follow facts, you learn statistics, you go to Nate Silver's blog, who tells you what percentage point chance the party has to win. Uh, you read a lot of news and then comment on the news. And so you're like an amateur pundit yourself. And I just thought to myself like, none of this is politics. <laughs> this is this is just much closer to sports fandom or uh, the example I like using because it's uh, more relevant to my family is like foodies who, you know, mm. follow restaurants or uh, recipes. You know, it's it wasn't real. It wasn't real. So I want to write a book that was about this phenomenon of political hobbyism, which is sort of just a catch all term for doing politics for your own satisfaction, like satisfying an emotional need you have to feel connected or an intellectual desire you have to like learn factoids versus doing politics 
as the pursuit of power, which is a, a term like power. People don't like are uncomfortable with that idea. You know, what does it mean to pursue power? But, you know, you want control of the government if you're in politics. The, you know, you want to be able to convey your values through the democratic process. And to do that, you need to win <laughs> elections and have control of public hearings and all sorts of stuff. That's what politics is all about. So. The book's about that disconnect, and 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 also it's targeting, of course, the hobbyists who who are who else would read a book about politics, but a right. political <laughs> hobbyist trying to move people from this domain of consumption, just you know, self-satisfying emotional intellectual desire to a place of strategy and channeling that that emotion and that energy into something that's useful for their cause that they believe in. So so then in your book. And, and in articles you've written in, in um, or a piece you wrote in Atlantic Magazine uh, when your book was released, you argue that that political hobbyists, you believe, have harmed democracy um, and then obviously would do better by redirecting that energy towards, as you said, material, emotional needs of their neighbors, trying to gain power, trying to influence not through social media, but on the ground, meeting people and getting to know them. Um, so, so, and you lay out the reasons why you think um, the the we'll talk about whether this group has grown over time and and why they've developed. But why why do you think that you know political hobbyism? Let's let's say that is hurting American democracy, and I and I suspect Canadian democracy and democracy around the world. Right. I mean, so number one is that um, if you believe as I do that there's like a lot of problems that. Uh, our democracy needs to solve, then all of these people spending their time doing basically nothing is a real shame. I mean, people don't have endless hours of free time. So the, the fact that you have people spending an hour or two a day, and then when you survey them, as I did, they, you know, 95% of them do not engage in any kind of strategic behavior. You feel like, wow, this is, this is a lot of people wasting their time and not responding to very serious problems. Uh, early in the book, right in the introduction, actually, I give this example of um, strategic behavior, and I use the Ku Klux Klan as the example. So the Ku Klux Klan in just a couple of years ago was seen in North Carolina, um, which is a, a swing state in American politics, mm -hmm. uh, basically running an opioid clinic. So they were going around to people and saying, you know, you have an opioid addiction, it's not your fault, we're here to help you. and I tell that story in the intro of the book because I want people to understand the stakes that when they are like just, you know, flicking through their phone, liking things and arguing with people about like dumb polling averages, uh, white nationalist extremists who I assume they don't like are out on the street running an opioid clinic and winning over supporters. So the stakes are, are actually very high for people doing nothing. Um, and what we see through evidence in the book is that the people who are most likely to be political hobbyists are the people who are most comfortable, uh, mm -hmm. upper middle class, college educated, they have jobs, they could, you know, they could say, oh yeah, climate change is a big problem, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that, but they don't really feel serious stakes in politics and that's why they're engaging in political hobbyism. So one major reason why this is bad is this is all of these people who have the time to spend on politics are instead spending it on a, a game. Uh, but, you know, it's worse than that. As I talk about, um, there are certain areas of political hobbyism, at least in American context, where the hobbyists are making things worse, actively making things worse. So I use our donation system in the United States as an example of this. Um, 
there's been a huge increase in low dollar donations in American politics where people are basically, you know, through, you know, one click technology, you know, they see some viral video and they give $5 here and there. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's become very clear in the data on low dollar donations is that low dollar donations tend to go to candidates who are extreme and provocative. Um, it's why Donald Trump was so good at raising low dollar donations. He raised more low dollar donations than his liberal opponents raised. Um, because every time there was a provocative, he was very good at making provocative videos and pe pe basically people, and by the way, some are some people on the left, like, you know, Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. uh, AOC, uh, you know, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, these people raise a lot of money in low dollar donations too. And what they're doing is they're, you know, they're making a video or sending something of themselves, like ripping someone else down. And people feel a sense of catharsis by seeing a politician do that. And so they give money because that makes them feel good. And so what you have is all this money going to candidates who uh, are extreme basically and provocative, and it's creating an incentive in the political system that if you wanna have easy money, you know, you just say some outlandish thing. And we've seen our politicians turn everything from, you know, congressional hearings to town hall meetings to campaign stops into opportunities for them to make a viral video. Um, and, you know, I think that for many of us, myself included, that's kind of damaging to the system. And, and we see that in Canada, too. Our, 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 you know, not all, but most of the, you know, major political parties, if you follow them on, on Twitter, you wonder who are they speaking to? Because most voters would look at that content and say, you know, that is not a party that seems mainstream or wants to try to win a lot of voters over, yet they're only speaking to their you know, party members and activists who are hobbyists, large part, and, and need, you know, right, that dopamine hit of like anger or engagement that, that it creates. So, and, and we also, like our parties rely on small donations too. We, we've got pretty tight limits in Canada. So it, it this, the incentives are exactly the same, I think. And, uh -huh. and so there's a lot of overlap there. Um, what do you think it does, political hobbies? So, so you really lay it out really, I think, effectively in the book to show all how all the moving parts kind of respond. So the media has some, you know, impact on this because they they want this audience. They need this audience. Like this is the, 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 the quote, political junkies who are watching, whether it's Fox News or MSNBC um, or, or cable news generally um, consistently and, and often. Um, and then there's other institutions that are playing a role. But what do you think the impact is of, I guess, political hobbyism on non-hobbyists, right? On those that you said aren't as comfortable and are actually seeking change for to, to improve things or their own place in the world? Does it almost set, does it does it have bigger impacts on trust in the system itself and how you know everybody else sees these institutions and the people that are in them? as being kind of out of touch and only talking to a, a very small audience that are playing a game as opposed to, you know, yeah. trying, to, trying to do things in, real, in the real world. Yeah, so I would say that um, at the sub-national level, like in state and local politics, uh, politicians generally just get a big pass because the hobbyists are interested in national, like left versus right, good guy versus bad guy kind of politics. And, you know, that's why you have people who will say they spend two hours a day on politics, okay, consuming political news, 
But if you ask them anything below the national level, they don't even know the names of their representatives. They never vote in those elections because they don't know anything about what's going on in their state and local communities. And of course, it's not, at least in American politics, because it's kind of small potato stuff at the state and local level. We have a huge amount of power that goes through our states. And so, you know, if you say your biggest issue is economic development, if you say it's infrastructure, if you say it's race relations and funding of minority schools, uh, if you say it's climate change and you're ignoring the state house, you're making a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in some sense, the hobbyists give a pass to all of the people who work in state and local government because they don't pay attention to them. And um, the, the hobbyists have no idea how things work. I mean, how does a bill become a law in a state house? Who has power? How do you get leverage? Hobbyists don't think about things like this. They think about national politics. I think that there is um, a major problem. So, so the answer to one part of your question is, you know, if you're a state legislator, you can more or less ignore the hobbyists because they don't vote in your elections and you can just carry on. Um, now, a lot of people, particularly people who are, uh, say, on the, on the far left or on the, on the left or the right, they, uh, uh, they shouldn't want to ignore the lawmakers because lawmakers tend to be more moderate, business oriented and so forth. So, you know, they kind of ignore them at their peril, but it's not bad for the lawmakers themselves. Um, it is, however, bad, the hobbyism is, for people who are not that engaged in politics at all right now. I mean, uh, we have a bigger problem with this than you have in Canada, but you have some sort of a problem with it as well, which is like we don't have, you know, great turnout rates. Um, we have a lot of people who are totally disengaged. And one hypothesis about why so many people are disengaged is that um, they look at politics as just this circus that... Um, us versus them, good versus bad, uh, uh, and it's gross. You kind of want to take a shower. I mean, you know, if I go on to Boston sports radio and listen to people fighting about uh, who the Patriots coach should have played in this third quarter, you know, I, I would think to myself, my God, like this, this is terrible. What a, what a horrible sport. People are, you know, getting upset about the dumbest things and they're yelling at each other. And it's not, that's how most people would listen to any sports talk show uh, or any kind of, uh, any kind of um, political, I mean, sorry, political talk show, anything, anything about politics that's geared to hobbyists. Like, it's just, it's not about real stuff. It's just people fighting. Um, I think when politics is much more about like, meat and potatoes debates like you know should we build this bridge should we fund this thing do we want to tax people to pay for this um it's not as exciting to the hobbyists but it's like real life and so i I think that we are turning off people to politics when we make everything into uh you know a nationalized us versus them brawl what's the impact on on the parties themselves i mean i mean in the u.s political party is a little different in terms of its structure. It's so amorphous and everywhere in, in, in your lives than it is here in Canada. But, you know, you wrote, um, you know, that political hobbyists, quote, might front as allies on social media, but very few, and you use the example of white liberals, are actively engaging in face-to-face political organizations, committing their time to fighting for racial equality or any other issue they say they care about. Climate, you add climate change to that, given that we're just coming out of uh, COP26 and that that issues on the agenda. So if you've got all of these, quote, hobbyists who see themselves as activists, but actually aren't 
active in anything other than, you know, typing out a few digits and, and talking a lot about this. Our political parties in the US and then elsewhere, I think you can apply reacting, like how, how is it affecting their own behavior and structure and the way that then they engage with the broader public? Yeah, so basically the, the political parties have to um, just try to uh, get people's attention when they can because the hobbyists are very, uh, um, they get tired of things quickly. The, the hobbyists aren't in it for the long haul. So, you know, you give an example, uh, last year we had these major protests uh over black lives matter and police reform and a lot of people were out in the streets something like the majority of democrats or something like that a huge number of democrats said they engaged in a protest and i was doing a lot of you know talks about my book and interviews people would say oh you know is that hobbyism going to a black lives matter rally and my reaction was, well, it, you know, it kind of depends what happens next. I mean, are you just going because it's a sunny Saturday and you get to feel good about yourself? Uh, because what happens at those rallies is that someone up front is saying, thank you for coming. This is step one. Uh, we, step two is we actually need you to show up to a town hall meeting and a select board meeting and a city council meeting. And we need to re remind the lawmakers that you care about this issue. And we need you to vote in the next election, in the local election, where we usually have 10% turnout. We need you there to, to say that this issue is important to you. Now, if you went to one of those rallies and you're a Democrat and you say you care about those issues, and that was the beginning and end of your engagement, you didn't do any of those things, then yeah, that's hobbyism. You did that for yourself. <laughs> now, if it was the first step into some deeper engagement, then then no, right? So the, the issue is like right now, what we're seeing is you go to a town hall meeting now, uh, you go to a school board meeting now, and those liberals are gone. Those meetings are entirely overrun by folks who are now there, who are on the right and you know interested in uh getting rid of mask mandates and and opposing uh critical race theory and you see this cycle again from say you could you could do the same story a decade ago you know democrats get excited about uh, barack obama and they say healthcare is the most important thing we have obama gets elected democrats get elected with this huge overwhelming majority they pass universal health care and then there starts to be town hall meetings and and the democrats are gone and then the republicans get organized the republicans take over congress the republicans take over you know the supreme court and where were the democrats D did they care about it or not and and the republicans by the way the opposite i mean if you're a conservative you can tell exactly the same story but in the opposite so you go through these cycles because the hobbyists are not actually committed to any strategy or any policy goals they just are willing to show up when it's fun uh or when it's gratifying uh and and so um you know, what is this party supposed to do with that? A party needs to actually be in it for the long haul. They need to win those midterm elections and local elections or else they can't enact their policy agenda. So, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's just a very big problem for parties. So so this it all sounds as though, you know. Under underlying your, your thesis and the story you're telling in this book, it's really a story about the decline of community organizing. Among large parts of, of sort of the American political system, particularly on, I would say, the progressive left, right? Like when you think about the yeah. fact that in your book, you, you, you highlight who are political hobbyists. Well, they're typically older. They are more likely to be men, but they are also 
more likely to be self-identified Democrats and progressive kind of oriented, highly educated uh, people. And they're white, right? Generally speaking, not that's, that's, that's the average. And you think about the history of even the Democratic Party and, and community organizing. Um, like, to me, that sounds like what, what's happening is you're seeing a decline there. And so, as you said, groups that are still on the kind of out, they're not comfortable, they don't have the privilege of being educated and white and well off, are filling in the gaps that are being left and organizing themselves. And they're, they're kind of winning because they're, because they're, they're winning power and they're electing folks and they're, they're getting folks on the Supreme court, as you described, is that, is that in, in essence, the story that like the implication of this from a public policy outcome perspective? I mean, I think what you see is that you still have power goes to people who are organized. Right. So, I mean, I think that there are elements of the, Democratic and Republican parties that are organized, you, you know, unions are very uh, small compared to what they used to be, but they can, they can pack a punch because they can get people out uh, to vote and to organize and, and all that. I mean, churches, you know, which has become increasingly a right wing thing in, in American politics. I mean, it's increasingly associated with the, the political right, um, where the the church itself doesn't have to be political at all. But the fact that a thousand people or a hundred people know each other in a community and can leverage those social ties for a political or civic purpose, that's very powerful. I mean, mm. and I, I say that as a religious person myself, I mean, before an election, I can send an email to a hundred people and in my own neighborhood and say, here's who you should vote for, for the local election. And they say, thank you very much. I didn't know about, you know, any of these races. I appreciate it. And that's like a division of labor in a community. Cause like, you know, if one of them's a nurse or a doctor and my kid breaks their ankle, I'm not gonna solve it myself, I'm gonna go to them. And they come to political scientists, you right. know, <laughs> about politics. Like that's how civil society works. And I think for a huge number of liberals, uh, that just doesn't exist for them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it used to, right? I mean, it used to because most people were in religious communities and particularly on the left now they're not. Um, uh, so that's one implication. I mean, the second thing you're saying in particular as it relates to race is that the story of, of race in the book, I, I tell a little bit differently, I think is about stakes. So that what you still see in American politics today is that the people who really actually feel the most threatened, that the issues um, are personal and matter for their lives, actually do politics in a real way. And mm -hmm. so you see, for example, racial minority groups, even though they spend less overall time like consuming political news, end up spending more time than white Americans uh, volunteering for organizations. Uh, because they're, you know, in many cases, they're organizing for really like concrete things. Um, education for their children, you, you know, and so if you're if you're in a upper middle class, comfortable life, you have a good job, your kids are in a good school district, maybe you, the stakes are not particularly high for you. So you just treat politics instead like a hobby. I'm sure people listening are going to ask and I always get asked, is this new? Or was this the case in, you know, the 1950s or the 60s? Um, and in the book, you, you you make the case that no, this is something relative, not new, but it's it's becoming uh, more frequent, and and there's more political hobbyists than there were in the past. What what's the evidence that you found that that supports the idea that this is becoming a bigger problem as opposed to one that's always existed? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, so, so we've had, say, since the 1950s, that's what you mentioned, it's like we've had this obviously well-known and well-reported decline of civil society, of organized life, right? So like, you know, I have some overtime graphs or, or, or stats in the book. It's like we have more people than ever saying that um, the election is critical of deep importance, but fewer than ever saying they are a member of an organization or did any volunteering. Most people who spend an hour or two hours a day, a day on politics, uh, belong to zero organizations, have attended zero meetings in the last year, uh, have worked with others zero times on any kind of civic and political thing. So we have this decline of civil society and we have not had, even in the Trump era, a big increase in, um, in actual organized engagement. Um, you know, another big trend, of course, is social media, which makes this a bit different, where people have this um, avenue to spend so much time becoming essentially an amateur pundit, and they get to channel their political energy that way, as opposed to through organized political activity. Um, so I think there's a technological change, there's the there's the, the civil society change, and then there's kind of the collapse of party organizations. I mean, there's the par political parties have changed, politics has changed because it's become more nationalized, um uh local party committees which used to have some amount you know good amount of power say in the 1950s i mean had a huge amount of power local political parties in the 1950s were in charge of choosing nominees for president um mm. you know and uh in today if, like in in the 1950s rules someone like donald trump would never have been a nominee because voters didn't get to decide who was the nominee party leaders got to decide and then over time, in the spirit of democratization, we've liberalized how we choose our nominees for party endorsements. We've liberalized the donation rule, so we encourage people to give $5 donations. And all of this democratization has had um, has been fuel for hobbyists who kind of want to engage in a kind of DIY way, but not through any organ organized uh, strategic organization. Are there, are there structural factors that help explain this i was just just as you were talking there i was thinking about you know increasing inequality so economic and social inequality that that i think might exacerbate you know the divide between the hobbyists and and everybody else right there's this reoccurring theme that there's this you described it earlier in our conversation there's a comfort you know being comfortable is kind of the definition of being able to afford to be a political hobbyist because you don't have the stakes aren't high. You don't have to actually, you know, hit the ground running. You have time. Time is the most valuable resource. And if you have lots of it, you can spend time watching Rachel Maddow every night or, or you know, scrolling through your Twitter feed because, heck, you don't have to work two jobs or, you know, uh, anything else that you, that you need to do. Is, 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 is there, and maybe I'm, this is going beyond your actual book, but as, you, as you've been engaged and talked about sort of the findings, are there, in your sense, structural problems that are exacerbating this in your mind that that um, might lead to either a solution to it or can help solve for the issues you've identified? Well, I mean, I think there are ways to make party organizations stronger, uh, getting more money to having robust local political parties, we, you know, basically making local civic civil society stronger is, you know, is important, whether that's through um, better funding for nonprofit local journalism to getting people involved in a political party 
that does more than just fight about politics. You know, I give all these examples in the book about parties that, you know, give out free turkeys and childcare and try to do real things for people so that people have more of a connection. I mean, I, I think especially for younger people who tend to be much more mobile and to be much less religious, uh, there is a sense in which they don't have a home base and they don't mm -hmm. have uh, any kind of neighborhood. Uh, and that stuff is really important to keeping people engaged year in, year out. I mean, the, 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 the problem is that people are only getting energized in certain, in, in a cyclical way, right? So right now we see that Democrats have control over Congress. So of course it's the Republicans turn to get organized. Democrats sit home, right? My students who were super, I work on a liberal college campus. So my students were, you know, volunteering and doing, doing stuff when, uh, last cycle when Biden was on the, and now the Democrats have won, they're sitting at home. They're not going to go canvas anymore. They're not going to go volunteer anymore because things are okay enough right now. And then the Republicans will take over Congress because they're super jazzed about this now. And then we'll go through it all again, all again, you know, and hopefully like the country doesn't collapse at some point. So um, <laughs> that's kind of where we are. That And, and what, the diff, what, what happens when you have an actual robust localized civil society is that people can stay involved year in, year out because they're not, they're not energized by a celebrity on the ballot. Right. right. They're and, energized it create, by and, it, and it seems to me that the, the aggregate of that would be more stability. You would, you would have fewer kind of swings where you'd go from a swing election, which you'd, you'd elect all these Democrats and then swing all the way back to Republicans and, you know, a little more stability because you right. have people actively engaged all the time. Yep. They don't have to be actively engaged. I mean, when you think about the, Think about the hundred people I sent my, engaged. <laughs> my email to, right? The, th the thing is, and this is important, right? The reason why my hundred friends are going to vote in a local election is not because of who's on the ballot. And it's not because what time of year it is. Is it because it's because they don't want to let me down because mm. I'm their friend. And when politics operates like that, some people don't like that, by the way, they think, oh, how gross people are voting just because of who their friend is or who some local leader and that could be abused and whatever. But the alternative is what we have now, which is that no one votes unless there's a celebrity on their ballot and it's a fun time to vote. Or become, yeah, or becomes the thing to do at that moment and then it loses cachet. Um, in reading your book, I couldn't help but feel as a pollster somewhat responsible uh, for feeding and encouraging political hobbyism. I, I imagine most of the visitors to my website, when we put out a poll during uh, the last Canadian election, for example, uh, were going there because they wanted to, you know, like I would as a kid, open up the newspaper and read the, the box scores for baseball. Um, they just wanted to see the stats, who's up, who's down. Um, you know, we don't often have daily tracking in Canada, but we during elections we do. And it's like this daily fix of, you know, yep. one point increase, one point. Have you thought about sort of, it didn't come up very often in your book, but but the role that kind of polls play, you mentioned Nate Silver and kind of the aggregators. Um, thoughts on, on, on how the, the, you know, polls feed this kind of yeah. behavior. And I, I can't imagine it's, you're going to have good thoughts to say, but I'm, but I, I, I would be remiss not to talk about it given what I do. Yeah, for no, I, I appreciate you asking it. And I, and for sure, like when my book came out, Nate Silver tweeted something like, Oh, this is a very judgmental take, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think there's two ways to think about it. I mean, there's, there's the way to think about it from the producer of this content uh, versus the consumer of it. So 
Um, from the producer side, I would say two things. One is that um, there are some polling information that does inform people's decisions about what they do and some polling information that really doesn't. And, you know, the public is starved for information about local elections and other issues that they care about. And to the extent that you can use the polls that are already uh, going out to ask questions that really help people concretely learn information that can inform their decisions is good. I, I would say the, the other thing is that I am very sympathetic to the view that, um, you know, if you're a if you're a firm, then you're trying to make money, uh, and what brings you clicks or money uh, is uh, is polling. Then okay, you need to have that on your website, but you better also supplement that with actually useful information <laughs> that that is good for the world. Um, mm. So I, I think that. Um, and I've talked to pollsters in the U.S. who basically this is what they think. You know, they have to do the polling because that's what people want. But like then they try as much as they can to shift people's attention to more important things. Mm. Um, I, I think in general, though, we we and I'll tell you how I react to this stuff, which is that like uh, as a political scientist who studies U.S. elections, you know, you can imagine how often I'm asked about like what's my take on the latest poll, mm -hmm. and um, I would say starting around three or four years ago, I just don't. I don't talk about that kind of politics anymore. I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna say yes to an interview about talking about something that I think is for hobbyists. You know how someone did in a debate, uh, right. uh, what a poll says. If you want to talk about politics to me, like then we're gonna talk about organizing. We're gonna talk about politicians. We're gonna talk about power and strategy, and um, and we need to kind of change the whole discourse around this so that the public is more interested in more important things, frankly, than. A daily polling average. It's so true. I mean, and and I appreciate that that perspective. And I and I do kind of personally feel that need to do good things with the power that I have to ask people questions as opposed to just feeding the the horse race beast all the time. But but just to your point about like sometimes, and I'm I want to end with another last question. But I was thinking about you know our political. The Canadian political world, which is not much different from what we see in the U.S., I don't think we're as aggressively partisan or biased in, in some of the the cable news. But there's still some of it there. But there's this obsession with the tactics of politics. You described like how did somebody do in the debate, and that becomes like a whole 45 minute segment on a show. Like most people don't, unless you're a political hobbyist, have any interest in that. In the same way that if you're not a baseball fan. You don't care how someone's, you know, pitching stats have evolved or, or, you know, anyways, I'm not, I haven't watched a lot, a lot of baseball recently, so I can't even think of an example, but you know what I mean? So I guess I want to end our conversation um, with, with the, with the, so what do we do about this, I guess? And, and your book is as much a, I think an, an analysis of, of the situation as it is almost like a call to arms to say, okay political hobbyists, if you do care about the state of your country, if you are, if someone like Donald Trump or Barack Obama on either side of the political spectrum gets you riled up and gets you tweeting about it, you got to actually do something. Um, is, is that, so what's the solution then that you see is, and it's the solution, I mean, like, what do you want people like me and other hobbyists listening to this to actually do um, in order not to see the kind of the impacts of this prevail over the long term? 
Yeah, so obviously, depending on where you sit, whether you're in media, whether you're in government, or a regular person, a uh, 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 regular citizen, the, the answer is going to be a little different. I really did gauge the book to like the regular citizen and who I think often wants to deflect blame. You know, they say, you know, I, it's not my fault, it's the media's fault, or it's rich people's fault, or it's, uh, you know, the institutions of government's fault. And I, I find all that very convenient. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff you can do. And so part of the book is, a big part of the book is telling these stories of people who did it differently and actually think about playing a long game. You know, how much can you do if you try hard over a period of five years, a period of 10 years? And it's really shocking. I mean, really since writing this book, I personally have gotten involved in local issues and have made like serious concrete changes in my community on issues like housing and policing. Uh, it's not because I'm some kind of genius strategist, it's because I worked with others, I had a strategy, uh, uh, and I was able to influence government. And you could say, a hobbyist be like, oh, well, that's just one town. Well, actually, no, if people in every town did these things, uh, then we could solve a massive housing crisis or we could solve um, a, a crisis of education. Uh, your job is not to like fix everything <laughs> in the whole country, it's to like do your part. And so I think like long-term institutional engagement is, is, is part of that. The other thing is like being an adult about how things are supposed to work. So, I mean, this is an attitude towards government that I think is really weird um, that people have. You know, sometimes or uh, compromises are supposed to happen in secret. <laughs> like sometimes like politicians need space to hash out a deal and you, the voter, don't need to be privy to every single thing. Um, you could actually defer to a leader at some point in your life, you know, whether it's who to vote for or when to get involved. You know, the idea that every voter should individually be doing research and uh, opining about everything and they expect every politician to be public about every conversation they have, like, that is just a childish view of decision making. So I think we need to have like a different view about politics and also different activities we do where like the, you know, I, I try to give people in the book some uh, guideposts. How do I know if I'm doing it right? And so one one really simple one, and maybe we can leave with this, is that mm -hmm. um, I ask people who are spending time on politics, you know, uh, is anyone counting on you? Is anyone counting on you? So if you are on social media, for example, tweeting or whatever, and you stopped for a week or two weeks, is anyone going to say, hey, Joe, we, uh, we miss you so much, all your hot takes? Probably not, because no one's actually counting on you because you're not doing anything for them. You're doing something for yourself. But if you're a part of a legitimate organization and you are having a strategy for influencing the government and you, you, know, you ghosted them, your peers, they would be like, hey, Joe. Uh, we, we missed you. We needed you there. Uh, not only is that like probably good for your soul that people need you <laughs> and want you, but that's a good sign that you're doing something that's useful because other people are depending on you. I think that's a great way to end it. And I, and I agree with you on the soul piece that if some, if you don't have somebody depending on you or counting on you, it, it's probably a lonely existence. And so if you can surround yourself with people who count on you to show up, you're probably going to feel a lot better about yourself too. And uh, heck, I think in, after coming out of this pandemic, I think that that could be a, a nice, nice change to things. Well, um, A10, uh, this has been a great, uh, great time, great chat. Uh, your book is Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change. 
highly recommend it and uh, really appreciate your time today. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, take care.